You're listening to our Neurology Revision Series, part of the Finals Countdown program of episodes targeted at final year medical students as you prepare for med school finals. Right, so after several episodes of hardcore neuroanatomy and neurology theory, we're going to change gears now and focus on everybody's favourite, the OSCE. There are a few potential neurology exam stations that could come up in your exam, depending on how much time you're given, but broadly speaking, you'll probably be asked to perform an upper or lower limb examination, assessing either the motor function, sensory function, or both, examine some combination of the cranial nerves. You may be asked to examine all 12, for example, or only those involved with vision, or those involved with everything except vision, or you may be asked to perform a cerebellar examination. It's probably likely that in true medical school fashion, you'll be given some rogue vignette asking you to examine the sixth cranial nerve, the sensation in the left forearm and the right ankle reflex. For my finals, my vignette simply read, examine the limbs with a view to making a diagnosis. What I'd say therefore is to just practice over and over again until each component of each exam becomes muscle memory to you, and then you'll be prepared for whatever absurd vignette is thrown your way. The neuro examination, as with all OSCE examinations, is like passing the driving test. You learn them all to perfection for the sake of the exam, and then in clinical practice, you have the luxury of being more selective and focused in your examination. We'll start today then by recapping the cranial nerve examination. There's plenty to discuss when it comes to the cranial nerves, so I suggest splitting this up over the course of two episodes. Today, we'll focus specifically on the second cranial nerve, the optic nerve, and in the next episode, we'll go over the remainder. As I said, you might not be asked to examine all 12 nerves in your exam and instead be asked to examine a particular group of them. As a quick recap, the cranial nerves supply the muscles of the head and neck as well as transmitting sensory information to the brain. The powers that be have warned me that I cannot under any circumstances share any mnemonic that could get me or this show into trouble, so I reluctantly share one that's altogether more cardboard and probably more suitable for the airwaves. Oh, 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 to touch and feel very good velvet, ah, heaven. So that's me doing my bit as a responsible podcaster, although I strongly advise you to find something that's distinctly more memorable. Similarly, the mnemonic some say marry money, but my brother says big brains matter most, tells you whether each of the 12 cranial nerves carries a motor function, a sensory function, or both, which again may help to inform you about what to look for in your exam. So, without further ado, let's get stuck in. We'll talk about the second cranial nerve, the optic nerve first, as it may often come up as a station in itself, and then come back to the others. As with all OSCE examinations, the first part of the dance remains the same, which you can remember by the wipe mnemonic. Wash your hands, introduce yourself to the patient, position them appropriately, and explain the examination and obtain consent. It's good practice to start with a general gross examination and comment on anything that immediately jumps to mind. For example, facial facial asymmetry, irregularities in the pupils or eyelids, and any paraphernalia by the bedside, such as hearing aids or glasses. So, examining the optic nerve actually involves assessing several components, including visual acuity, visual fields, visual inattention and neglect, pupillary reflexes, examining the optic disc, checking colour vision, and examining the blind spot. You can remember the components of the optic nerve exam by the mnemonic AFRO-C, which stands for acuity, fields, reflexes, optic disc, and color vision. 
Before doing all that though, you should start with a good inspection of the pupils, commenting particularly on size, shape and symmetry. You may notice a meiotic pupil in Horner's syndrome for example, or a dilated pupil in the case of an oculomotor nerve palsy. Examining visual acuity involves the use of a Schnellen chart, with the patient standing 6 metres away and wearing any distance glasses that they normally would. As a bonus, you could offer a pinhole to see if this improves vision, suggesting a degree of refractive error. The patient closes each eye in turn and reads till the lowest line they can. If they get any more than two letters wrong on any given line, the line above is considered. The numerator is the chart distance, so 6, and the denominator is the lowest line they can read to. So as an example, if a patient standing 6 metres away from the Schnellen chart is able to read as far down as the line marked 12 with his left eye, but only as far as the line marked 18 with his right eye, you would say that they had visual acuity of 6 by 12 in the left eye and 6 by 18 in the right eye. If the patient cannot read even the top line of the Snellen chart at 6 metres, you repeat the process at 3 metres and then at 1 metre. Failing that, you can ask them to count the number of fingers held up on one hand, see if they can discern gross hand movements, or if they retain perception when a light is shone into their eye. In practice, you may not have a Snellen chart in the exam, so you could grossly assess acuity, for example by asking them to read your name on your badge and then say that you would undertake a more formal assessment using a Snellen chart. Visual inattention and neglect may be seen in the context of parietal lobe injury, for example following a stroke, and isn't technically an optic nerve pathology. Patients may be inattentive to the visual field on the contralateral side of the brain injury. You should seat the patient a metre away from you at your level and ask them to focus on a fixed point, for example your nose. Hold both hands in equal distance between yourself and the patient and wiggle the index finger of each hand in turn, and then both together. So for example, if on wiggling both fingers, the patient can only see your left index finger move, this suggests a right visual field deficit, and therefore a left parietal lobe lesion. Examining the patient's visual field relies on a comparison with your own visual field. So with the patient still seated a metre away from you, you should ask them to close one eye and you close the opposite eye. Whilst making sure they again focus on a fixed point such as your nose, bring your index finger, or a hat pin if you have one, in from the periphery of each quadrant of their visual field. You should expect that their visual field roughly corresponds to your own. If they are unable to see your finger or the pin at the point at which you can, this suggests a reduced visual field. Ask the patient to close their other eye and you yours and repeat again. The two main visual field deficits you may expect to elicit are a bitemporal hemianopia and a homonymous hemianopia. A bitemporal hemianopia is the loss of both temporal visual fields and suggests a lesion at the level of the optic chiasm, where the axons from the nasal retina decussate and continue as the contralateral optic tract. This is often due to compression by a tumour such as a pituitary adenoma or craniopharyngioma. A homonymous hemianopia, on the other hand, affects the same visual field on each eye and implicates a lesion posterior to the chiasm, for example, in the optic tract, radiations or cortex, and may be due to a stroke, tumour or abscess. If only a quarter of the visual field is affected, this is known as a homonymous quadrantinopia. The mnemonic PITS, for example, tells you that parietal lobe lesions produce an inferior quadrantinopia, whilst temporal lobe lesions produce a superior quadrantinopia. Again, as a bonus, 
you can offer a formal Amsler chart assessment to examine the visual fields properly. Another important part of the optic nerve exam is examining the blind spot, which is the part of the retina where there are no photoreceptors as the optic nerve enters the optic disc. Again, it relies on mapping the patient's blind spot against your own and involves sitting a metre apart from the patient and asking them to close their eye as you close the opposite eye. Ask them to focus on a fixed point on your face and hold the red hat pin at an equal distance between the two of you at their eye line. As you move the hat pin laterally, ask the patient to let you know when they can no longer see it and continue to move the pin until they see it again. This should roughly correspond to your blind spot and can be repeated in a supra-inferior direction. One of the most important parts of the optic nerve exam is to assess pupillary reflexes, namely the light reflex and the accommodation reflex. The pupillary light reflex comprises three parts, assessing the direct response, assessing the consensual response, and performing the swinging light test. Shine a pen torch in the patient's eye and observe for pupillary constriction in both the same eye, implying a direct response, and in the opposite eye, implying a consensual response. A normal pupillary light reflex requires both the afferent pathway, i.e. sensory input transmitted along the optic nerve, and the efferent pathway, i.e. motor and output from the ocular motor nerve which innervates the sphincter pupillae, the muscle responsible for pupillary constriction. So, for example, if shining a light into your right eye produces both a direct and consensual response, this suggests both the right optic nerve, i.e. the afferent pathway, and bilateral ocular motor nerves are intact. If, however, shining a light into your right pupil produces neither a direct nor a consensual response, this implies a right optic nerve pathology. As the afferent pathway on the right side is impaired, the optic nerve cannot transmit information to the midbrain and therefore cannot engage the efferent limb to produce pupillary constriction. Similarly, if shining a right into your right pupil causes a direct pupillary response but not a consensual response in the opposite eye, this suggests a problem with the left ocular motor nerve. The information is getting to the brain okay, but the ocular motor nerve on the left side isn't working and therefore cannot constrict the pupil. The swinging light test, on the other hand, involves rapidly alternating the pen torch between both eyes. Under normal circumstances, both eyes should constrict equally in response to a light being shone in them. A problem with the optic nerve may give rise to a relative afferent pupillary defect, RAPD or Marcus Gunn pupil, wherein both pupils appear to paradoxically dilate when a light is shone in the affected pupil. An RAPD may be seen in the presence of central retinal artery or vein occlusion, or due to optic neuropathy secondary to optic neuritis, unilateral glaucoma or a tumour. The accommodation reflex is altogether less of a faff and involves asking the patient to focus on a distant object, for example, on the wall. Bring your finger up about 20 metres or so in front of their eyes and then ask them to shift their focus from the wall to your finger. You should notice both constriction and convergence of their pupils in response to near vision. There are two other elements of the optic nerve exam you're probably unlikely to have to do, but should mention for the sake of completeness are to offer to assess colour vision by using the Ishihara plates and to examine the back of the eye using an ophthalmoscope. All of that and we're not even onto our second cranial nerve yet. Don't worry, the others are more straightforward. I reckon this is a good place to take a natural break.
don't want to be getting on your nerves after all. We'll leave it there for today and I look forward to bringing you part two of the cranial nerve extravaganza. Mm -hmm.